Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Adrian Brodeur. She is the author of the memoir Wild Game, which was selected as a best book of the year by NPR and the Washington Post. She founded the literary magazine Zoetrope with Francis Ford Coppola and currently serves as the executive director of Aspen Words. Her new novel is Little Monsters, which is published by our friends at Avid Reader Press, which is a division of Simon & Schuster. Adrian, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Jason. Absolutely. It's an honor to have you here. And uh, before we start, I want to let our listeners know that a little halfway through 2023, the gauntlet has been thrown down. This will likely be my favorite book of the year. It may be the best book of the year. We will see. Congratulations, Adrian. Thanks so much. That's exciting. Thank you for writing it. And um, before we get started in on our on your novel, I'm hoping you can tell our listeners a little bit about Aspen Words and the work that you do there. Well, Aspen Words is a wonderful literary nonprofit. It's part of the Aspen Institute, and our mission is to inspire readers, encourage writers, and connect people through stories. And we have all sorts of programming in Aspen and beyond. Um, one of our programs, I mean, I don't know how much you want me to get into the the whole um the whole program, but one of our one of our newer programs is uh, the Aspen Words Literary Prize, in which we award a thirty five thousand dollar cash prize to um, a book that a novel or a work of fiction. It can be a short story collection that shines a spotlight on a social issue. And um, additionally, we have a big writing conference in the summer called Summer Words. Uh, we have an author speaking series called Winter Words. Uh, we have a residency program that we hold in Woody Creek um, and all sorts of in the school programs as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adrian. Um, let's now dive into this excellent novel, Little Thank Monsters. You. Yeah. Can you please take a moment to just set this novel up for our listeners? Sure. Um, well, for anyone who has is familiar with my memoir, Wild Game, um, knows that I have a fascination with family secrets. And so it should come as no surprise that there are a lot of secrets in this novel as well. The book is set in 2016. And um, I loved, I mean, even before I started writing, I just remember feeling that there was something so palpably anxious about the time, that time period. It was before the election and the book is set before the election and it's not remotely a political book, but I was trying to evoke that sort of moody uneasiness that was going on in the country that time. It's set on Cape Cod and it follows a very small family, a father and his two adult children. The mother died long ago Um, and something big is at stake for each of the three characters. So there is Adam Gardner, who's the patriarch, and he is a marine biologist studying um, humpback whales. And he really believes he's on the brink of a major scientific discovery there. 
And his his main anxiety is about relevance. He wants to stay relevant. He's about to turn 70. So he's worried about sort of slipping into oblivion. His oldest son or his only son is 41. And he has just sealed a real estate deal that's kind of catapulted him into this new stratosphere of wealth. He's got political ambitions. There's a lot going on in his life. And then there is a daughter, Abigail, Abby, who is a painter. And she is sort of just found her voice, her voice, a sort of artistic voice, and she's about to be discovered. So we know sort of all the good things that are about to happen for each member of this family. And for whatever reasons, they're all not quite sharing their good information or their good news. Um, and they're waiting for Adam's 70th birthday to um, to reveal these big surprises. But of course, never not everything is what it seems. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adrian. So you mentioned secrets. Let's talk about secrets a little <laughs> bit. Um, oftentimes people hold on to secrets or sensitive news, et cetera, because they are worried about what other people are going to think, or they are worried about how the news might affect elderly or sick relatives. But then when the secret or news is shared, they find out that most of this was in their heads, that they were really processing the news and its effect on themselves. Why do you mm -hmm. think humans do this? And is this going on with any of the characters in Little Monsters? Oh, I, I mean, I think there are so many reasons that people keep secrets and some of it is about shame and some of it is, you know, sort of exactly what you said, when to spring this on someone, how will others react? But yeah, like everything, I think people have these notions about how others will receive news or how others are reacting to things. And it almost never accurately reflects how others are going to react to it. It's mm -hmm. and, and that was actually what was really so fascinating about exploring this family, because I really went into each, um, each character's head, a very close third person. And I think this is so true in life that we we just all feel so sure that someone looked at us funny because of this or that, or why did they say that? And, and our understanding or our, the reasons we give ourselves for people's behavior is just almost never accurate. And I love the sort of subversive quality that essentially the readers know more than any one of these characters along the way. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adrian. Um, I now want to talk about the character of Ken and the concept of possession. Uh, why is Ken so concerned with this concept of possession and things being his? For example, his sister's art studio, their pet turtle, their mother, etc. Well, I think, you know, Ken's a really complicated character. Um, and I think I, I have a great deal of compassion for Ken. Um, he's He kind of can't get out of his own way. I think he's definitely the most wounded person in the book. And I think he needs a lot of control, which is, I think, ultimately why he doesn't release things easily. Um, so his mother died when he was very little. Uh, he was about three years old, and it was right around Abby's birth. And then he got very, you know, the father has bipolar disorder, so he's not the most reliable person in their young lives. And then Ken sort of over relies on his sister 
uh, for emotional support and everything else. And at some point she cuts ties with him or not cuts ties, but she moves away. Typical sort of adolescent kind of pulls back, follows her own path. And he just proceeds to sort of be wounded by all these events and a little damaged. And so I think he holds tight to what he can hold on to. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Adrian. Um, I'm going to pivot for a moment to Adam, the father character in this novel. Um, and Ken, too, a little bit, but I will frame this question around Adam. Can you describe what it was like to write a character in such a sensitive manner who has obviously benefited from being a white male, um, but doesn't believe that he has benefited from being a white male? Um, in other words, he has done great work. Right. He believes that work that his research on whales is what made him successful and that his personal biology had nothing to do with this. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, you know, this is what the last few years have been. I think we've all come to a greater understanding of how, of the ways in which we were privileged that we had no idea. And I don't think it goes across the board. The younger you are, the more easily this concept comes to you. But I think it is really complicated for the older generation to take in. And, you know, Adam does feel he worked hard for everything in his life. Um, and I think he just doesn't, he, it's just hard that the rules have changed. And I feel like that was what I was witnessing a lot on all sorts of micro and macro levels, um, mm -hmm. in particular in 2016. But he doesn't understand why you can't tell a lady she's pretty anymore and why, you know, why things come more easily to him. I mean, I, as I was writing the book, I, I did have this sort of analytic question in the back of my mind that I, you know, you, you sort of think about, I guess, at the onset of the book. And then actually, as you're writing, you have to push it far away. But I was thinking a lot about why do women have a harder time finding their voices by and large? Why, why does it seem harder for them to hold on to either get or hold on to power? And so it was interesting to just explore that from all angles and from a man who just took it for granted, you know, mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Adrian. Um, stepping away from the world inside your novel for a moment, uh, I have a friend, Therese Ann Fowler, who was selected as a Barnes & Noble Book of the Month, um, as this novel, Little Monsters, has been. And we, and when I say we, I'm talking about independent bookstores here, we do not consider Barnes & Noble our enemy. Having chain bookstores out there in the world is important, uh, just like having individual independent bookstores is important. I used to manage a chain bookstore in a past life, but um, what does it mean to you as an author to have your novel selected as a Barnes & Noble Book of the Month? Honestly, any of these selections are hugely, you know, they're just a huge honor. I was thrilled to be an indie pick. I mean, the Barnes & Noble selection is enormous. There's no two ways about it. Um, it's interesting to me because when I used to be an editor, it was the publishing house that paid for placement in Barnes & Noble. And it's almost as if Barnes & Noble has shifted and is trying to follow the more independent bookstore model. So they're selecting these publishers can no longer, you know, pay for placement, at least as far as I know. Mm -hmm. um, so that that makes it a little special too. Um, but when I was, I'm just off of the first week of tour and I, my husband and I drove from Cambridge where we live to New York and then Connecticut and back up to Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And we stopped at probably 15 Barnes and Nobles on the way. And yeah, it's undeniably thrilling to see your book on a on a little table all of its own so um i've been i've been really pleased 
Absolutely. Congratulations on that. And hopefully that'll help this excellent novel get into as many hands as possible. Listeners, we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And I'll be right back with Adrian Brodeur. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Adrian Brodeur, author of Little Monsters, which is published by our friends at Avid Reader Press. Adrian, I'm hoping that you can talk about the intersection of visual art, paintings specifically, and literature. Uh, Your character, Abby, is a painter. She has named a painting she is working on uh, that she intends to give her father uh, on his 70th birthday, Little Monster. There have been a lot of books that concern themselves with artists and the world of art. Uh, Barb Shapiro's books come to mind as contemporary examples and Donna Tartt's The Goldfinch, maybe, and a lot of classic poems, of course. Why do you think that novels and paintings work so well together as artistic mediums? I think ultimately both artists and writers are trying to tell their stories, you know, different mediums, obviously. Um, but in, in Little Monsters, uh, Abby actually is is really, she, she does tell a narrative story in her work. Um, and so it just, it was, it was a fun exercise to kind of wrap my head around that and around giving a different kind of artist a voice and, and seeing how, how she got to where she needed to get to. Yeah, and on the flip side of that, um, what about the intersection of literature and science? Uh, your novel, of course, deals with um, science like whales, communication, etc. cetera. Uh, Cormac McCarthy's latest novel, The Passenger, deals with science, the overstory by Richard Powers, which is still a bestseller in our store in Aspen. Why do you think these seemingly opposing disciplines merge so well? You know, it's interesting. I haven't thought it, about it quite that way, but I mean, for me as the author, one of the beautiful things about writing fiction as opposed to memoir is you can you can give your characters any work that you want to. And and I love I live on Cape Cod half the time. I'm quite obsessed with marine biology. I tell my kids all the time if I weren't in the literary world. I would be studying whales. Um, so it was just really a thrill and a pleasure for me to do that. But I also think you you pick things that are rich in metaphor that you, that move you personally. I think when you when you successfully talk about the natural world, I mean, there's so much territory to mine. Um, I, I just I can't imagine. I mean, it would just be very hard to give your your characters a lot of jobs you weren't that interested in or didn't didn't have so much um, meaning on multiple levels. Yeah, absolutely. And there's at least one other big whale novel out there in the world. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Back to art for a moment Um, at your character, Abby's friend, Jenny, uh, who is married to Abby's brother. Ken is Abby's gauge historically as to whether or not her art, uh, her paintings are working. 
Um, I personally have a best friend and collaborator who works with me in, in this respect, my friend John Ziddle and my wife, Claire, who I've told you on multiple occasions is the only person I know who reads more than I do. Um, I'm wondering if you have someone like this in your life and more broadly, if you think artists are better off having this sort of friend, editor, critic, etc. in their lives, or if artists are better served following their own inner voice and no one else's. You know, I think it varies artist to artist entirely. I mean, in the end, you have to follow your own voice. I mean, you're still going to be gauging what feels true. When I was an editor, I always used to tell the writers I worked with that the only, some part of you should be internally nodding and feeling the truth of an editorial correction. If you're thinking to yourself, and not just first response, but as you sit with it and think about it, if you're if you're thinking, well, that does not work at all, it it doesn't. You shouldn't take it. Um, in my own life, I mean, I absolutely have a few trusted advisors who are so wonderful. And I am someone who really edits, um, I'm sorry, who really welcomes being edited. I mean, mm. anyone who <laughs> who's going to make the work better, etc. that to me is a gift. Um, but I know a lot of writers who don't, and I admire that too. Um, I think most of the writers I know do a little bit of both. I think you have to, you have to be your own true North Star and your own, um, best gauge as to what what is necessary or not but when you when you get I think sometimes when you get stuck somewhere or someone points something out they don't always know the solution but just to have someone else's eyes on it to let you know that that is a point where something might not be working is very very helpful yeah absolutely thank you so much Adrian um my next question is about Ken uh what can one gather about Ken Adrian by the fact that he prefers reading Michael Lewis and Malcolm Gladwell to Steinbeck, Hemingway, and Faulkner. <laughs> I do not know that I have a great answer to that other than he's just a nonfiction guy. Mm. And, um, you know, he was in therapy at the time and was a little stumped. And um, he just, I don't know that there's a lot to infer other than, you know, we, he's just a certain type of, of reader. Mm. Yeah. And as a brief aside, another literary question, do you think that Steph, who wonders at some point if lobsters feel pain, has read David Foster Wallace, specifically his essay, Consider the Lobster? He had to have. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's a great essay. For anyone out there who hasn't read it, I, I know it's been um, a minute since David Foster Wallace has been at the forefront of the literary conversation, but that's a great essay. Um, yeah. And Adrian, Back to Ken for a moment. He says that Republicans are an eco-friendly party. Is this true? I believe he believes it's true. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, this was another point that I love that you you have, you know, as I said before, you have Adam wondering about why he can't compliment women. You have Ken who who says stuff like that, who um you know, but who is meanwhile fighting erosion on his own property, like the effects of global warming are happening in spades right in, in front of him. And yet, you know, it's still a conflict. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, now let's pivot back to Adam for a moment. Um, so many fascinating characters in this novel. Adam is searching for a sort of theory of everything. 
uh, is manifested through whale communication, uh, which again is his area of expertise. Do you think that the search for an all-encompassing theory of everything is always a sign of mania as it is with Adam in this novel? No. Um, I mean, I think Adam, I, I think there's a certain grandiosity associated mm -hmm. with mania. And I certainly have, have been around my, my share of people in my family and friends who have struggled with bipolar disorder. And I think, during the manic phase, there is this, with the people I know, and with some of the research I've done, there is this um, ability to make connections between things and this uh, ability to kind of tap into parts of your, your brain and your memories that might be elusive to most of us. And in that way, you know, you feel like you are making these connections. I mean, I think we all have little bits of this, right? Where somehow, you know, you see, I don't know, a starfish on the beach and the stars and that, you know, and you're sort of making these elaborate leaps. Um, but I think I I I think it's I think it's a unique to the individual type of situation. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Adrian. Um, and I want to well, first, before I ask this question, listeners, this is a bit of a spoiler, um, not for the end of the novel, but it's a spoiler nonetheless. So if you are a spoiler averse uh, listener and you are going to read this book, which of course you are, then you should pick up your device, press pause uh, and come back to this moment when you have read the novel. Um, but Adrian, we alluded to Steph earlier. We haven't talked about Steph too much. Steph, who is Adam's daughter, uh, Ken and Abby's half-sister. She isn't informed about this until much later in her life when she discovers a genetic disposition that no one in her family, as she thought she knew it, has. Um, and then later in the novel, Ken and Jenny's teenage daughters, uh, whether they are with Ken or with Abby, are constantly fishing for information about the rift between their father, Ken, and their aunt, Abby. Mm -hmm. My question related to these things, Adrian, is Life is complicated. Uh, when your kids ask about these types of complications, or even if they don't ask, but you know they will eventually, when do you think a child is old enough to learn the unadulterated truth, at least as the adults in their lives understand it? 10, 20, 40, never? What do you think? This is a parental question, not a literary question. I, you know, I lean because I had um, such secrets sort of kept from me and also secrets that I was participating in mm -hmm. in my own childhood that I certainly lean towards, you know, radical honesty. You know, I don't want to give my children too much information and, uh, and I, and I don't, but I, I do feel like I would never want to, I would never want to either keep a secret from them or certainly have them involved in secret keeping the mm. the idea of having a half sister in this book and and obviously i'm interested in all these sibling relationships both of my parents had half siblings that they didn't know about um that they discovered as, as sort of late teenagers or in their in their young adulthood and i've really always been curious both how that felt you know to understand that parents had these big secrets that they kept from you, mm -hmm. but also how it felt for the, you know, outsider, if you will, to enter in or to become aware of this other family that they 
essentially weren't included in somehow or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that answer, Adrian. And finally, um, and we could talk about this novel all day, but we don't have all day, uh, but I'll see you again. So maybe I'll have some follow-up <laughs> questions at some point in the future. But finally, um, we cannot all choose our families, but some of us can and do. Uh, is this a silver lining situation for people who find themselves in this predicament, fortune resulting from misfortune? It's a really interesting question. I mean, one of the things that surprised me with Steph, and I used to, as an editor, I remember when novelists or writers generally would tell me how like characters started speaking with them. And I was like, oh, that's too woo-woo for words. But <laughs> Honest to God, that's mm. what happens. Mm. Um, and so I I really had a very clear sense of this novel going up to the point of the patriarch's party, Adam's party, when the gifts were given. Um, and then I remember being like, oh, now what? Now what? Now how do I unravel this? And and so I sort of figured it out strand by strand, but I I really loved the fact that Steph um on some level decided that she wanted to sort of take what she wanted from this new family and wasn't had no intention of just taking the whole of it and i and i do feel like we all come from families and we kind of accept the unwritten rules and and traditions without a lot of questions you know this is this is your family this is what you do this is how we act and I kind of love this idea that, well, what if we didn't? What if you didn't have to? What if you just um, took the parts of the family that were best for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Adrian. And thank you for writing this magnificent novel, which is sure to be one of the best, if not the best novels of the year. I've been speaking with Adrian Brodeur, author of Little Monsters, which is published by our friends at Avid Reader Press, a division of Simon & Schuster. Adrian, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Adrian Brodeur for joining me. Copies of Little Monsters can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsors at Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.